Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Now, um, James Noonan from Yale University will present a talk entitled Uniquely Human Gene Regulation. So thanks to, to the organizers for inviting me to come and, and talk today. This has been a great meeting so far. Um, I'm going to follow up a bit of what Katie's been talking about, but look at it from a somewhat different perspective, uh, specifically the evolution of human morphology. So this is a cave painting from Chauvet Cave in France. It's about 30,000 years old. It's an outline of a human hand, and it illustrates several things, I think, that resonate for what we're all interested in here, which is, first, that's a hand. Okay, we use this to make tools. Second, whoever made this had the cognitive ability to conceive of making this image in the first place. Okay. And third, he's making an image of, if it's a him, he's making an image of his own hand. So clearly our fascination with what makes us different from other species goes back a very long way. So this is the fundamental question, as we've been discussing, is what makes us human. I like to show this picture because I think it hits pretty much right on the nose, what distinguishes humans from non-human apes. Uh, we managed to achieve something, in this case, that he has not been able to do. Okay, if we want, he wanted to go to the moon, he'd have to come with us. He's not getting there himself. <laughs> so as we've heard, it's about six to seven million years of evolutionary divergence between humans and, and chimpanzees. The genomes are very similar to each other. And what we're interested in is, under, is really understanding what changes are important in a genome, and specifically, how do we find these? So we take the position in our lab that the way to think about this is to think about it from the perspective of embryonic development. So changes in the way that the hum humans actually develop are responsible for these sorts of high-level traits, tool use, cognition. Okay. So increases in brain size and complexity, changes in the morphology of the limbs. These enabled us to do these things. So to really understand how these sorts of changes evolved, we have to really study human embryonic development uh, as best we can. So this is a 54-day-old human embryo. Um, you can already see you've got the cortex developing, you've got hands, you've got feet. So these differences that we're seeing here, bipedalism particularly, is laid down pretty early. So how are these changes encoded in the genome? That's what we're interested in. So uh, quite some time ago now, 1975, uh, Mary Claire King and Alan Wilson first proposed this idea that maybe it wasn't all protein coding differences, that maybe it was differences in the way that genes are actually controlled that account for human-chimp physical differences. And if you think about it from a developmental perspective, this makes a lot of sense. Okay, so if you want to make an embryo, if you want to make a cortex, Really, what you need to do is to precisely control the way the genes are actually expressed in that structure. So the cortex, the limb, these are specified by very complex patterns of gene expression. So how does that work? Well, as Katie mentioned, regulatory switches in the genome are really controlling the expression of genes. That's something that we now understand pretty well. So if you want to express a gene, say, in the embryonic limb, the embryonic brain, there are sequences that actually direct expression. Okay, these are discrete sequences in the genome, um, termed enhancers, which is what I'm going to talk about for the rest of the time, 
Um, they recruit transcription factors. They act on particular genes. And particular enhancers will drive expression in particular structures. Okay, so this, in this case, this enhancer is driving expression of the limb. You can have another enhancer for the same gene. It's located somewhere else, uh, maybe further upstream from that gene. That's driving expression, in this case, in the developing midbrain. And by combinations of these different regulatory modules, you get a complete expression pattern and a developmental outcome. So we think that changes in the function of these enhancers may have altered development during human evolution. And the logic behind this is that if you, if you want to modify developmental processes, mutations in genes are really not the way to go. Because mutations in many developmental genes tend to be lethal. These genes are expressed in many places. They have a lot of jobs. If you knock out or modify the gene, it's gone everywhere, or potentially altered everywhere. That's not a very tolerable situation. But changes in particular regulatory elements, particular enhancers, those could alter gene expression in the embryo, producing a different expression pattern that produces a different developmental outcome, maybe changing the morphology of the brain in this case. So our interest is in identifying enhancers that have human-specific functions during development. There are several challenges to doing this. Um, first is identifying enhancers is inherently, is inherently difficult in the genome. We don't have an enhancer code. That's analogous to the genetic code. Uh, identifying enhancers that are likely to have human-specific activity is also difficult. And we need to really have rigorous experimental methods for defining human-specific enhancer function in an embryonic context. So one thing that helps us, as Katie mentioned, is that enhancers tend to be conserved across species. So if you look at genome sequences from many different evolutionarily divergent species, these sorts of regulatory sequences tend to be maintained over evolutionary time. And there are statistical and quantitative measures of this sequence conservation that we can imply to actually pick out these sequences from the genome. So the system that we use to really test whether or not a particular conserved sequence has developmental enhancer activity is a mouse transgenic assay. So the basic components of this assay are taking a sequence out of the human genome, hooking it up to a bacterial gene that makes an enzyme, which you can then stain blue, effectively, in the embryo, inject that DNA into a single-cell mouse egg, uh, a fertilized mouse embryo, put that back into a pseudo-pregnant foster mother, and then collect embryos and stain for the activity of this reporter. And the idea is that if your sequence can drive gene expression in particular places in the embryo at particular times, you can see that here. So this is driving expression in the cortex. Here's a sequence that does the same thing, another brain enhancer. So there's two things to keep in mind here um, that are often confused. What we're actually doing is we're testing the ability of a conserved human sequence to activate a reporter gene in a mouse embryo. Okay, These are not human embryos. Uh, the sequence enters the mouse genome in a random location, so we do many of these experiments in parallel. And if we see the same pattern over and over again, that suggests that this, the activity we're seeing is inherent to the sequence we put in. It's not an artifact of integration. So we wanted to, wanted to identify enhancers that have human-specific function. So the approach that we took um, back in 2006 was statistically similar to what Katie described, where we're looking at sequences that are highly conserved across many species, but have a lot of human-specific sequence changes in them. Um, so sequences are evolving rapidly. 
Now, here we're looking specifically for sequences that could be enhancers, so we ignored anything that had any evidence of transcription. And we call these human accelerated conserved non-coding sequences, um, or HACNSs. I think it's safe to say that Katie picked a better name uh, than we did. <laughs> but this is what we got stuck with, so we're sticking with it. Uh, we identified 992 of these sequences in the genome. This is their distribution across chromosomes. Um, they're on every chromosome that we could actually do an analysis for. Uh, and we found that they tended to be near genes that are involved in brain development, particularly brain wiring, forming neuronal connections. So the hypothesis there is that potentially some of these are going to be enhancers that have human-specific functions in the brain. So here's one example. This is HACNS1. Again, the 1 is as for HAR1, um, simply because it's at the top of our list. Uh, it's in a gene called AGAP1 on chromosome 2. It's downstream of another gene called GBX2. This is a developmental transcription factor involved in brain development, among other things. Um, and this is the overall conservation profile between human and other species. There's a lot of blue here. All that really tells you is that it's very deeply conserved overall between human and many other species, except here, where there are all of these human-specific sequence changes. So if we look at that up close, we've got a short stretch of sequence here that's 81 base pairs long, and you can see in red, each place we have human has a sequence difference relative to all of these other species that are identical to each other. Okay, so chimp all the way down to chicken. So this is very surprising to see. We wouldn't expect to see that by chance, certainly not in something that's this deeply conserved. So this is a direct target for our experimental study. So this is what we do. We're using the same assay system I described uh, to identify HACNSs that function as enhancers. So to do this, we actually have a little schematic map of the mouse embryo, and we've divided it up into quadrants and zones based on anatomical structures. Um, we use a single developmental stage due to these experiments. This is 11-day-old mouse embryos. Um, this allows us to score expression patterns in a very rigorous way. And the basic experimental design is to take the human sequence, test it, score it, compare that to chimp, compare that to a rhesus sequence. And the idea is that if chimp and rhesus are the same and human is different in the activity, you have a human-specific function. So many HACNSs are enhancers. Uh, these are some of the ones that we've found. And wherever you see blue is where the reporter gene is active. Okay, so this is the cortex. Uh, this is in the midbrain. Uh, this is the hindbrain. This is in the branchial arch. This will eventually become your jaw and your mouth. Uh, but I'm going to talk mostly about this guy. Okay, so this is HACNS1. What you see here is expression, particularly in the, in the embryonic limbs. Um, in the anterior part of the limb. Uh, again, this is the branchial arch, this is the ear, this is the eye. So it's a very strong enhancer in all of these structures at this stage. So what we see when we compare the activity of the human sequence, okay, which is shown here, and I should say, each of these is an independent integration event into the mouse genome, each of these embryos. Okay, so that's one injection into a single cell mouse embryo. And you get the same pattern in each case. We compare that to chimpanzee, we see that the activity of the equivalent chimpanzee sequence is quite different. Uh, some aspects are the same, including some of the major domains, like the branchial arch. Uh, but what's most obviously different here is the limb. 
So there's an overall reduction in activity, but specifically in the limb bud, this very strong anterior expression we see in the limb is not present in chimp or in rhesus. We compare it to rhesus as an outgroup. So the conclusion that we come to when we see something like this is that this is the ancestral state, at least in old world monkeys, and human is derived. Something else that I'll come back to in a little bit is if you look at the face for these guys, you see expression here in the medial nasal process for rhesus and for chimp, but for the human sequence, you don't see that. So there's also been a loss of function that goes along with this gain of function. And we published this back in 2008 in Science. So coming back to those sequence changes that we identified in the element, we did a pretty simple synthetic assay, simply taking the chimpanzee sequence and humanizing it at these positions, doing the same experimental test on that humanized chimpanzee sequence. And what we found was that by putting these 13 changes back in to chimp, we get the human activity. If we take the human sequence and revert it back to chimp, or the ancestral state as inferred by chimpanzee, uh, we get what looks like the ancestral function. So these sequence changes, which we identified purely statistically, okay, not based on any kind of experiment at the beginning, these are directly responsible for this functional shift in the activity of this regulatory element. So what was really interesting to us when we looked a bit closer at what this enhancer is doing, now looking at 13-day-old mouse embryos, so two days later in mouse development, what we see is that the human sequence is driving expression specifically in digit one in the forelimb and the hind limb. So these are digital rays. These are the digits that are forming in the mouse. This is our enhancer activity. So the forelimb, obviously digit one turns into the thumb. The hindland digit one turns into the toe, the great toe. But from a, getting to the point where you want to develop a hypothesis as to what these sorts of shifts in regulatory function might be doing, this is the system that we're looking at. So looking at the loss of craniofacial expression uh, between human and chimp, where we see that Chimp has his expression in the medial nasal process, and human has lost it. Well, one interesting aspect of human evolution has been changes in the shape of the face. So, of course, chimps have this projection in craniofacial structure. We don't have that. Our faces are flat. So potentially loss here could also be accounting for something like this. Okay. So that's HACNS1. Uh, we're looking at other HACNSs, and I can't really get into this in too much detail here, but another HACNS enhancer shows human-specific loss of function in the embryonic cortex. So this is the human sequence driving expression in the developing mouse cortex. We see expression here in the medial part of the cortex. This is what the chimpanzee sequence does. Okay, this is the equivalent orthologous sequence of chimpanzee. And what we see in chimp is this expansion of this domain in different areas of the developing cortex, and also overall increase in the strength of the enhancer. So a hypothesis we're developing around this is that this may have something to do either with an increase in brain size in human, um, in that reducing, some paradoxical to think of it this way, but reducing the activity of an enhancer that, for instance, regulates a gene that promotes exit from the, from the cell cycle 
uh, in the brain may actually account for a change in, cell, in brain size, but also differences in different regions of the brain uh, between human and chimp. So as I said, I can't really get into that in too much detail, but this is something we're actively pursuing. So these are all hypotheses. We don't really know what these functional shifts are actually doing in the context of human evolution or biology. But the way we really want to approach that is as we would approach studying any other human, um, particular human sequence we're interested in from a genetic standpoint, which is we use the mouse. So all of these experiments I'm showing you, okay, keep in mind that this is simply taking a human sequence, putting it somewhere in the mouse genome, and seeing if it can activate gene expression of this reporter. Okay? That's not how you can model the biology that this reads out a molecular function. What we want to do, and what we are doing, is actually take the equivalent mouse sequence and replace it with the human sequence. And because we're looking at sequences that are deeply conserved across species, this is a relatively straightforward experiment to do. Since we know exactly what the mouse sequence looks like, we know where we should actually target our sequence. And we have a hypothesis that in the ancestral state, the mouse will be a good model for whatever the ancestral state of the enhancer is. And by placing this human sequence in there, we create a humanized mouse. So if this particular, being very reductionist now in our approach, if this particular human-specific regulatory change actually has some impact on uh, morphology and particularly human-specific aspects of development, we'll be able to model that in the mouse. Okay, so I just want to sum up uh, by giving you kind of an overview of, of our lot, the way we approach this problem, and I think the way that being able to compare genomes and do the sort of statistical analyses that Katie described um, can be leveraged to really get functional insights into what makes humans distinct from other species at the molecular level. So we start with maps of human-specific sequence change, which we now have. And what's critical is to translate these sorts of maps into functional insights. So in our case, looking at human-specific enhancer functions, looking for enhancers that have human-specific developmental activities. And then translate that in an experimental system to really understand if any of these particular changes in the genome, any of these discrete kind of low-level molecular changes, um, result in human-specific changes in development. And the best way, really the, the classic way to do that is to use the mouse and ask, can we humanize mouse development using these sequences? So with that, I'd just like to acknowledge people that have done the work. Um, my lab has grown in the few years I've been at Yale. Uh, most of the mouse work is done by Heather Adonhoffi and Sham Schultes. Um, our transgenics are made um, in collaboration with our animal genomic service at Yale, Carol Peace and Tim Natoli. We're working on our, the brain enhancer I described um, with Pascal Rakish in neurobiology. And the initial statistical analyses I described, the definition of an HACNS was something that uh, arose from a collaboration between myself and Shyam Prabhakar, who's now at the Genome Institute of Singapore. And these are our funding sources. Thanks. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.